Content warning. This episode contains a discussion of abuse. Spoiler alert for Stephen King's The Shining. If you have not read this book and don't want it spoiled, stop the podcast here, read the book, then come on back and join us. From The Shining by Stephen King. May 15th, 1947. Posh Mountain Resort reopens with stellar guest register. Derwent says Overlook will be Showplace of the World by David Felton, features editor. The Overlook Hotel has been opened and reopened in its 38-year history, but rarely with such style and dash as that promised by Horace Derwent, the mysterious California millionaire who is the latest owner of the hostelry. Derwent, who makes no secret of having sunk more than $1 million into his newest venture, and some say the figure is closer to $3 million, says that, quote, the new Overlook will be one of the world's showplaces, the kind of hotel you will remember overnighting in 30 years later. Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a Haunted House podcast. I'm your ghost host, Laura Casey, and this is my Haunted Spouse and co-host, Ben. Hello. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about The Shining, the 1977 novel by Stephen King. I didn't know anything about The Shining when I first read it just a couple of years ago, Now, of course, I recognize it as iconic to the horror genre. What's your history with The Shining, Ben? I'm pretty sure I remember when I was younger. I don't think I was like a little kid, but I was young enough that like I don't remember it super well. And I was kind of freaked out by it in like little kid ways where it was like, I recall like not necessarily being scared of the parts that scare me about it now. It was like slightly sillier stuff. But um, what scared you back then? I, for whatever reason, it always scared me the part when Wendy, I think Wendy's running away with Danny, and they see the scene with um, who I didn't know until reading the book is presumably Horace, I think, and the guy in the dog mask. Mm-hmm. That scene freaked me out. I don't remember anything else in that movie, like, when I was little, like, being, like, really scaring me all that much, but that scene. <laughs> so not the twins, not the lady in the bathtub. <laughs> no. Well, and that's where I wonder not if Jack maybe... Not Jack with the mallet. Maybe you didn't see all of it. Yeah, I'm wondering if I didn't see all of it, because I don't see how anyone could not be scared of just Jack Nicholson, just full stop. So <laughs> I think that was my first exposure to it. And then later on... I think, was it about the same time you read it that I read it Mm -hmm. as well? Yeah, I think you read it right after I did. Yeah. That sounds right. And then after the fact, we then sat down and watched the movie. Yeah. So that was kind of my experience. Little exposure to the movie, then the book, and then the movie again. So a little bit of history on The Shining. It was published in 1977 and is King's third published novel. It was adapted into a 1980 film by Stanley Kubrick, which 
Stephen King is on record as saying he does not like Kubrick's interpretation of his work. Not sure if we'll get into that at all this episode or not. I'm sure we will if we ever cover the film. Um, and so I, th- I think kind of as a result of that, there was a 1997 TV miniseries that was a truer adaptation of the book, uh, but was also not a particularly good series from my understanding, unfortunately. Um, Most recently, in 2016, the book was adapted into an opera. Yeah, (laughs) it is currently being adapted into a stage play. Oh, I'm so here for that. (laughs) Right? I could see this doing very well Mm -hmm. on stage. Well, and I love that he was working on a play, too, like that he was a a playwright. Yeah. Yeah. So that that could be fun. And it's currently in limbo, but J.J. Abrams has been working on a spinoff called The Overlook or just Overlook. Hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was going to be on HBO Max. It got dropped, so it's being shopped around right now. I'm intrigued. Yeah, me too. I would be interested to see how they treat something like that. Especially, I really would love to see a good, faithful adaptation of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious now to see what was in that miniseries, though. Right? Just knowing that Stephen King was also involved in that. I'm just kind of curious. So Yeah, I'd be, like I, I kind of want to know. I would check that out, even if it's not considered to be very good. Yeah. Well, especially to figure out, was it not well received because it was bad? Or was it because people think of Kubrick's The Shining mm-hmm. as And maybe the they're Shining. really attached to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, from looking at the trailer, it looked like they maybe tried to do some VFX a little <laughs> before its time. <laughs> Things that might be done a little better now i'm just laughing because i'm so tempted to ask but when is vfx's time (laughs) i mean now uh, well not just now but it feels like though every couple of years when you look back at what we thought was so impressive (laughs) i don't know if we're just making such fast improvements or what but it Mm. does kind of feel like what is there going to be a point where when you look back at the effects from a couple years ago that you're not going to be like, hmm, <laughs> we could do it better now. I, I mean, I think there will always be some of that. There are definitely things you can look back at, though, that, that do still hold up, even mm-hmm. for using VFX at the time. I guess that's true of, of other movie art forms as well, like, um, make, like really good makeup or mm. uh, good prosthetics or good costuming where they could have done digital effects but then they chose to do practical and maybe it's never going to look 100% realistic but you can appreciate that for the craft it was amazingly well done or or yeah I think that's a lot of it and a lot of it is did they work within the limitations of the time right because if they understood the limitations and didn't try to push things too far you can get away with a lot more that will still look okay whereas if you try to be bleeding edge and really push the envelope, so to speak, you end up with, like, Tron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good point. And honestly, that is not an area that I know a lot about, so maybe my critiques are not that valuable. (laughs) I I definitely think there's something to that. Yeah, that there's always probably going to be at least a little bit of Uncanny Valley 
with a lot of those things when we look back at them. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see how we look back on some of the Marvel movies where they've got entire scenes done digitally. Yeah. Because they look really impressive now. But mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see where things go. Sometimes they're yeah. too much for me and I get sleepy. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> um, speaking of sleepy, there is a sequel to The Shining, uh, published in 2013, called Dr. Sleep. Um, I don't actually know that much about it. I believe it follows Danny. I know it involves the Overlook in some respects. If you'd like to read an excerpt of the first chapter, (laughs) it's in the back of this book. (laughs) Our copy of The Shining included a kind of cheesy updated cover, and that somehow also looks dated. Uh, speaking of which, mm-hmm. and also has an excerpt from the sequel in the back. Nice. We'll have to give that a read because it sounds kind of neat. And I know it was adapted into a film in 2019, uh, which I believe was pretty well received. So I'd be interested to watch that, especially because it sounds like they aimed to maintain continuity with the Kubrick film. Oh, so it kind of ends up in this interesting place where it's based on a book that's in continuity with the original novel, but it also tries to, yeah, keep that continuity there, so. In the movie universe. Uh-huh. That's really interesting. I'm really on the fence because I am very curious to see what happens in the sequel, mm. but also I'm not sure if I'm ready to give up five-year-old Danny for... Adult Danny. Adult Danny. I'm real nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, think, I guess yeah. we get a little bit of that same feeling with it, where you have the adult, mm. quote unquote, versions. <laughs> I guess um, you have the same characters, both as kids and adults. And that's okay. So Yeah, it'll be okay. Maybe it'll be okay. <laughs> I think there might also still be, I think there might be like a new kid in Dr. Sleep. So you might still get some of that little kid well, content. Yeah, but it's my concern is that I really like Danny oh. and I'm worried that bad things happen beyond what happened in The Shining that <laughs> bad things continued to happen to him. Yeah. So. Well, there's only one way to find out. I know. <laughs> okay, anyway. Anyway. Published and set in 1977, The Shining tells the story of Jack Torrance, a writer and former prep school teacher slash alcoholic who is hired to be the winter caretaker of The Overlook, a luxurious hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Over the winter, the heavy snows cut the hotel off from the nearest town, isolating its inhabitants. When the snow melted the previous spring, the dead body of Jack's predecessor was discovered. He had killed himself after murdering his wife and daughters. Jack brings his wife, Wendy, and their five-year-old son, Danny, to stay with him over the winter. Danny has an ability called The Shining, which allows him to read people's thoughts and emotions and see into both the past and the future. Before arriving at the Overlook, Danny begins to have nightmarish visions that he doesn't understand. It is soon revealed that the Overlook has been host to all sorts of wicked deeds, deeds that have left a lasting mark and given the hotel a mind all its own. Once the snow begins to fall, sealing the family into the overlook for the winter, 
the hotel's past and present collapse in on one another, causing the Torrances to question their sanity and senses. Scenes of violence and debauchery long past play out in front of them, and the hotel seems to come alive as a monster with an insatiable appetite. The Overlook begins to manipulate Jack and terrorize Danny and Wendy, tearing the family apart. And in the bug, which moved upward more surely on the gentler grade, he kept looking out between them as the road unwound, affording occasional glimpses of the Overlook Hotel, its massive bank of westward-looking windows reflecting back the sun. It was the place he had seen in the midst of the blizzard, the dark and booming place where some hideously familiar figure sought him down long corridors carpeted with jungle. The place Tony had warned him against. It was here. It was here. Whatever Redrum was, it was here. Do you think The Shining defines a modern haunted house? In a lot of ways, I think it does. Um, Partially because it feels like this time period between this and Amityville Horror is kind of the beginning of what we think of as the modern haunted house story, which is middle-class-ish family Mm -hmm. moves into a new house, a new-to-them house. And maybe it is a new house, maybe it is an old house, but they are moving in in search of new beginnings for themselves or to try to solve some conflict, which feels different from a lot of what we'd seen before, which is a group of people go and explore a house, like in The Haunting of Hill House, or even House on Haunted Hill. I guess The Shining kind of falls in between those two because mm. this isn't their house. They're not planning to be the, there this whole time. And actually, in that way, it cl- more closely resembles The Haunting of Hill House setup where they're there for a season. They're not planning to stay there. When they even reference Hill House. Mm-hmm. At one point, Jack directly references Hill House when thinking about the Overlook. Yeah. And... Yet at the same time, this combined with Amityville Horror, unless there's been some other story that I don't know about yet, which I'd love to explore (laughs) if there is um, from even earlier, it feels like we're bringing in, now it's a family that's going here to work out family issues in a haunted domestic setting. Mm. I almost see this as being a maybe a tipping point or because it feels very transitional between the old dark house as a haunted house trope and the American dream as a haunted house trope, because like you said, kind of like in Amityville, we have a little bit of this uh, young family moves in to a place looking for a better life, but ultimately that place doesn't belong to them and they are pushed out of it for some reason or another but i think unlike amityville horror the overlook is still an old dark house yeah yeah because yeah it's got this 
almost like the uh, the Fem family from Benighted or um, the Crane family from Haunting of Hill House. Horace Derwent is kind of that same type of figure of the the fact that this this hotel has keeps coming back into his ownership in one way or another, and this is kind of his his thing to the point that kind of his energy is driving the the hotel and the way it behaves and is either driving people out or trying to force them to come in. And so I think in that way we still see kind of this old dark house fallen dynasty type of story elements, but then juxtaposed with the Torrance family who are this family looking for a better life. Jack thinks this is going to be where he writes his play or where he becomes the next great American novelist. And even as the family, like, they kind of enjoy their time there for a bit at the start. And so we also see a little bit of that where their story kind of could have taken place in moving into a suburban home with, like, some dark secrets or something. But it just so happens that they're kind of juxtaposed with the older uh, style of haunted house story. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think you hit on another piece, another element of more of the old style is that the house has its own character. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think in the later modern ones, we sometimes see that the house doesn't have its own drives and motivations, but rather the people who used to live in the house that are now haunting it Mm. are the ones that are kind of pushing it. Whereas in The Haunting of Hill House, definitely that house has an overwhelming power in the same way that the Overlook does. Yeah. Which, again, pretty clearly you could see drawing inspiration from that when it's quoted in the book. Yeah. And I believe Stephen King has even been pretty clear about The Haunting of Hill House as uh, an influence on his writing. And I feel like it's very evident mm-hmm. when you're reading this. Um, like I said, even down to Jack literally saying, whatever walked there walked alone. Mm-hmm. Um I'm trying to remember what the context was for him saying that because I feel like he he made some kind of like juxtaposition to because I think it was something about like but you wouldn't be alone at the overlook or something like that. I think implying the fullness of the hotel because it's been influenced and maybe that's also another a little bit of a difference from the old dark house is all these things and all these people create this amalgam of a personality, I guess, um, even literally embodied at the end when they all possess Jack at once and you can see all the faces at once on him. Like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting, the fullness of the hotel. Yeah, I agree with that. And furthermore, I also <laughs> think that he is alone because... Ultimately, when his family leaves, Mm. he's alone. Yeah. And 
in The Haunting of Hill House, the power of the house, and I think also in The Shining, one of the biggest power moves that the house makes is isolating people, Mm. if not physically, then psychologically. And the draw for both Jack and Eleanor are the ghosts and the the people people the Uh spirits that they meet and how the house slash hotel creates a sense of community that they don't want to leave but it's a trap it's Mm -hmm. a false sense of community because in doing that it separates both Eleanor and Jack from the real human beings that they came with that they could be connecting with yeah it's a, it's a very cult-like type of isolation where you're being isolated by being welcomed into this group that is convincing you that you're the right fit. Like you are chosen to be a part of Hill House or you have been hired by the spirit of Horace Derwent to be the caretaker. Mm-hmm. And we see jealousy for both Eleanor and Jack of wanting to be the one that the house chose. Jack Mm -hmm. is even jealous of Danny when he thinks that, oh, maybe it's actually Danny that the house or that the hotel wants. He doesn't want that. He wants to be the special one. Mm -hmm. And maybe that speaks to the house is able to take advantage of people who have insecurities that it can then seek to flatter them into being manipulated. Yeah. Well, and the hotel even convinces Jack that he, if he successfully does this, he could be upper management material. Ooh. <laughs> Which is funny because real Jack would probably be like, that is not appealing to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, real Jack is, I, I think, my impression of that character is that real Jack wants power, but he also really values being like, kind of a lone wolf and like a an artist and yeah. he doesn't seem to be the kind of person who wants to be in administration because he's he sees himself as being too like genuine and raw of an artist for that kind of thing yeah i think that's a really good point and i think that underscores why it's so far into the book before he gets to that point the hotel has to spend a really long time working on him because there's a lot of scenes of the hotel kind of trying to poke its way in, but then things will kind of roll back a little bit. He'll kind of come back to his senses and then things will be fine for a while and then the house will kind of try again, present him with something new and it just it keeps trying to find its way in, trying to warp him into something he's not. And I think we touched on this in previous episodes, but I think that's what makes the Overlook so scary sometimes, is the fact that it really made him into somebody that he isn't. And I think we tend to assume that we can at least control ourselves if we can't control our circumstances, and that we see ourselves as being fairly constant, um, something to be relied upon. Or maybe we know our weaknesses 
but at least we know that those are our weaknesses. And yet this really turns that on its head that you could be so lonely somewhere with a house so evil or a hotel so evil that even the things you thought you knew about yourself are no longer true. And the very last sense of stability maybe you thought you had is now no longer there to be relied upon. Yeah. I also just remembered, and I'm not sure, maybe we'll come up with some way that this ties in, but I I just remembered that one of the ways that the hotel gets to Jack also is that not always, but at times he gets a little bit of a, gets into a little sense of seeing himself as the victim when things happen to him. For instance, he beat up a kid at school, but he sees himself as the victim for getting fired for doing that. So then I think later the hotel starts to piece at that, and maybe that's the foothold that the house uses to start turning him, is taking those little things and making him feel like he deserves to certain things or I'm trying to think of the right way to put it but um, like by the end part of it is that the, the hotel has told him it wants Danny and he is just a tool and yes he can rise up the ranks or it promises that he could rise up the ranks and whatnot but I think the hotel makes it pretty clear to him that it wants Danny and even at that point he is kind of between seeing it as Danny's fault that the hotel wants Danny more than him. And so seeing himself as a victim of Danny (laughs) in some ways. Um, And so I think it's interesting that it's not even, not even like his normal state, but occasionally he'll just get into a mood of looking at things that way. And I think that's when the hotel kind of gets a foothold. Mm Mm-hmm. That was so frustrating as a reader to watch happening over and over again because it was really unfair the way that he was seeing things. But, I mean, also, I think so much of those situations, like when he got fired for as a teacher beating up a student, (laughs) um, the reason that he beat the student up was because the student was slashing his tires. Obviously, the student was somewhat at fault for provoking this attack, but at the same time, Jack should have been responsible for not taking it so far. Mm. But I think that inside that ambiguity, for someone who needs to protect his ego because he has nothing left, no job, no money, no references, and also this crumbling marriage and the struggle with alcoholism, that he was in this vulnerable place where in order to protect the last thing he thinks he has left, which is his pride, he has to construct these alternative narratives around what happened. Hmm. Not to mention the fact that he grew up in a household with an abusive father who struggled with some of the same issues and also mandated a reality in their home 
that the father was not responsible for the abuse that he was inflicting on his family. Hmm. And although an outsider can easily say that that is not true, growing up in a home where that was considered to be the truth would make it even easier, I think, to fall into those faulty beliefs. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to save this for later, but I think this actually ties into a discussion topic I was going to bring up, which is, does Jack shine? (gasps) Hmm. I want to get your thoughts, and then I have a theory. It's funny that you asked that question, and I'm not prepared to answer it because I never thought about it. (laughs) I was too busy thinking about whether Wendy shines. Ah, yeah. And, well, we know she does a little bit, but if what she does is shining or if it's having anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Because just as a a quick aside on Wendy, she has visions and intuitions of things that could go wrong that another character, Dick Halloran, says that he thinks that all mothers shine to some extent, especially when they have young kids. And I think that anticipating your child's needs or being just so in tuned that you have a sense of when they might be getting themselves in over their heads <laughs> with something. Um, and then also having intrusive thoughts of things going wrong is somewhat typical motherhood, I think. Um, And now I don't think that this is specific to moms, of course, dads or other caregivers could also have this. Um, But in this example, especially with this book being in the 70s, that probably reflects a little bit of the perspective at the time. And unfortunately, a perspective still (laughs) now, even of that being specifically a mom thing. But so to me, it kind of leaves it ambiguous as to whether or not that goes beyond um, the normal intuition that a caregiver for a young child has, or if that normal intuition in this universe is the shining. So that's an aside on Wendy. Yeah. But getting back to Jack. <laughs> well, I will say that that's kind of how I interpreted it was thinking that in this universe, those little moments of that, like, oh, I have a little bit of a twinge about a certain thing or in this case, like caregivers potentially having those anxieties or senses that, yeah, that that is having a little bit of the shine or the shining. And then on top of that, actually, you have this confirmation bias, I think, that Mm. um, like maybe one out of 10 times that you are worried that your kid is in a dangerous situation, maybe one out of 10 times they actually are. And then that to you, like, confirms that you do have this sense because you only remember the time where you were correct. Mm. So, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that's such an interesting idea because that's something that we can all relate to, or many of us, I think, can relate to, which makes the story feel more real. Yeah. Because if I have this little bit of intuition or supernatural way of knowing, then maybe somebody else could have even more. Yeah. But to answer your question about Jack, now that I've stalled, (laughs) I guess it seems like kind of because he is so connected with the hotel that he's able to see those visions and something leads him to finding the scrapbook. 
Um, but I think the big question is, is that him shining or is that the hotel going out of its way to present these things to him? Yeah. And so here's my theory on it. Because, so Dick mentions, like you said, that he picked up a little bit of shine from Wendy, um, which he kind of anticipated he would. And he said that when he tried to get a feel for Jack, he neither got the feeling that he did or didn't. And here's my theory, and it might be a bit of a stretch, but I think Jack has The Shining. Typically, the idea of The Shining, for most people who have it, is that it's about reaching out, connecting to other people, connecting to the past, connecting to the future. Um, And with the exception of maybe like when Danny um, uses it to go deep inside himself to actually meet Tony, it's generally a pretty externally focused thing. Well, even I would argue Danny reaching inside himself to meet Tony is still externally focused because... Although Tony is himself, mm. right? Yeah. Um, he has knowledge of maybe the future or of external events, and that's kind of yeah. why Danny's seeking him. Whereas Jack, because Dick also mentions that it feels like Jack is hiding something, mm-hmm. and he implies that that's part of why it's so difficult to get a read on him. So I think Jack has The Shining... But he has turned it inward on himself, trying to keep something down, keep something contained. And I think it's his dad. Huh. Okay. Because at some point he mentioned something about having cut out his dad or cut out the part of him that was his dad. I think he has, in an attempt to not be that person has turned his shine inward to push that down to a point where he feels that he can separate himself from it. And because he's flipped his shine backward, the hotel has easy access to him. Because he's not... He's putting so much shining energy into the repression that he's not able to defend against the hotel's influence. Yeah, because whereas, like, Dick and Danny, we see them being able to push back against the hotel. Mm-hmm. Jack, with a few exceptions, it seems fairly susceptible to the hotel's attempts to reach out to him. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense to me that Danny has a ton of shine. Hmm. Wendy has a small bit of shine. And then I think we're supposed to just write Jack off in that moment because he's kind of such a jerk anyway. Like, we don't think of him as being empathic, which is a big piece of Shining. Yeah. However, it might be the other way, which is that that's where Danny gets his Shining from, is from his dad. Not necessarily that it's a... Hereditary. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) But I I mean, I think... I think when we're in a story, it makes for a good narrative to have that be inherited, especially since there are such strong themes of family problems being passed down from generation to generation. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting 
if I'm understanding you right, that in his attempts to repress the parts of him that are like his father, those are the pieces that the hotel reaches in and pulls out anyway. Yeah. Um, He's left himself so vulnerable in that way. Yeah. And I, I think that also works as a metaphor for what humans do, which is it kind of backfires a lot of the time <laughs> when you try to push stuff down. And the more you try to control it and repress it and not feel those things, then you're not being aware of how they might be coming out in other areas in less obvious ways, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why we see him have outbursts sometimes is those moments where he just can't hold it back or something has happened to distract him from holding it back mm-hmm. and or it's just enough to set him off and we see it slip around the edges like with George. A lot of times he doesn't even remember that that's happened. He'll just kind of come to after the fact, after he's kind of pushed everything back down Because then he often rushes to the aid of the person that he just hurt. Yes. Both in George's case and sometimes in Danny's case as well. I find myself, when I'm thinking about Jack, also thinking about kind of the symbol of a drowning person as somebody who is in so much pain and everything is so overwhelming and out of control to them, like... I imagine it would be to be drowning, that all they can focus on is getting that next breath of air and just surviving is all they can focus on, that they don't realize or can't control hurting other people in order to just stop feeling whatever they're feeling. Yeah. And sometimes he's treading water, sometimes he's doing okay, but as he becomes more overwhelmed with the overlooks attacks and also the other stressors of the situation that he's in, it becomes more and more about what does he need to do just to keep holding on, just to keep surviving. Yeah. And for him, sometimes that means that he's reverting back to the person he said he didn't want to be Hmm. because he feels like, his number one need is to protect himself and protect his sense of self and his pride or ego or whatever. Yeah. Um, It kind of becomes a zero-sum game where Mm. he feels like, or he sees it that way, even if it doesn't need to be that way, he feels like he must protect himself. And in order to protect himself, he can't protect his family. Yeah. Or he can't be open to the needs of his family. Whereas maybe there would have been a solution in coming closer to his family. Yeah. What's that thing of where to deal with things like that, sometimes it is helpful to rely on community and on support structures instead of trying to prop yourself up. Um, And do it all yourself. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, I, I definitely don't want any of this to come across as sounding overly sympathetic to Jack. Um, because I definitely do think that he is a victim of certain circumstances, but he is also a very unkind person a lot of times, and there are very clear ways that he could have addressed these issues without hurting his family um, and those around him. 
And I think that is a little bit of what you were getting at, that he views it as a zero-sum game where their gain is his loss. And Mm -hmm. so he has to keep things to himself. Yeah, and even even beyond the immediate survival of how are we going to get through this winter, there's also the point where he decides that he would rather face the possibility of his whole family dying in a really gruesome way, i.e. staying at the hotel, instead of leaving the job and having to pull themselves up truly from nothing because they would have nothing except the clothes on their backs and barely any money, no car, no place to live if they were to escape at, at that point. And the shame of having to just scrape by as someone who thought that he was going to be the next great American writer Mm. was so great that he would rather risk destroying, literally destroying his family. Yeah. And he has so much resentment for Wendy because her priority is in keeping everyone safe. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too, is that Wendy is always doing that and going to those lengths, actually taking care of Danny, and then Danny seems to have a stronger affinity for his dad. And so, even with that being the case, Jack still sometimes feels like Wendy is taking Danny away from him, or somehow getting in the way, or things like that, like... Like another one of those examples of him viewing himself as the victim despite being the person in a position of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we see that happening again and again where he, where in a conflict, he is the person with more power, for example, with him and the student. Um, mm. And then again, when he keeps making choices for his family about what they're going to do about being in a dangerous, haunted <laughs> hotel Mm -hmm. um and continuously he makes the decision that he feels is best for him in the short run versus recognizing that he's the only one who has the power to resolve the conflict Mm. and yet he continues to play as though he is the underdog yeah because he and his dad constantly had this narrative that they are the underdog and maybe in some situations for example between them and their employers they were the underdog yeah but then when they turn around and hurt their vulnerable family members who love trust and depend on them that is an abuse of power yeah and that's not acceptable And it's like they didn't have space in their self-concept to recognize that they could be both a victim of circumstances and also a perpetrator, I guess. Yeah, because he spends a lot of the book hating uh, Mr. Ullman and his place in the hierarchy. But then when the hotel offers him a chance to take a place in that hierarchy, he, and albeit, you know, this is after the hotel has worked on him for a while, but still, he's more than willing to throw his family under the rope mallet to claim his place of power. And that's where getting back to the 
drowning person analogy. Mm. Like, I get it, sort of. But also it just makes me really sad that he felt that that was the option. Mm. That there wasn't an option where he doesn't throw his family under the rogue mallet. (laughs) But also they all get out alive. Yeah. You know? And I guess, I mean, to me, now I cannot speak to what Stephen King might have been wanting to say, if anything, on this topic. But to me, it seems like that points to this cultural narrative that your pride is so much more important than taking care of your family, Mm. which I don't even think is really a cultural value, but I think it is a warped interpretation that he was, that was passed down to him down his family line, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, who even knows? But I guess bringing it back to a possible theme of a critique of the American dream, mm. the American dream really values moving your way up, mm-hmm. which is what he would be doing if he took the hotel's bargain, you know? And it also really values family. Simultaneously, there is a strong pressure on pride and sacrificing for the material benefit of your family, but not supporting building strong, meaningful relationships with your family. The pressure that would push him toward being successful professionally at whatever cost that might be to your family life. Yeah. Specifically, in Jack's case, continuing this job that is not a good fit for I want to say their work-life balance. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to reference the movie, uh, I'll work in no play. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this this job that clearly is not a good fit for where he is personally at this time, even if it might be the most lucrative option available. He feels pressure to maintain that role, despite how it's literally tearing his family apart. And I kind of got the same impression for his father as well, that he had this job that was clearly high stress and not something he enjoyed because he spent all of his time off trying to escape. Yeah. Both Jack and his father are resentful of their wives and feel that all of the sacrifice that they are making working outside of the home means that their wives should not have any complaints ever about anything. (laughs) Mm. Despite the fact that in Jack and Wendy's case, Wendy has a degree in sociology. Yeah. And she took jobs previously that she enjoyed, but Mm. that is never something that factors into the equation when their family is deciding what to do. And of course, the 70s were a different time, but even so, I mean... The fact that she is educated and very capable and Mm -hmm. appears to be a very dedicated worker seems like, in some ways, that's also not working to everyone's advantage. I don't know. Yeah. Even at the end of the book, we see Wendy get a job. She got the job from Al, I think. So I, I don't know if it was something related to school stuff. Like you said, she has a degree in her own right and... He even mansplains her own field to her. He's, like, spouting off sociology to her as if she doesn't know. 
Because her degree is in sociology. His degree is in English. Uh-huh. And he's literally telling her, it's sociology. Such and so is true because of sociology. It's just like Jack. It's reasons like that when I stop feeling bad for Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Something that keeps popping up to me Mm, in this conversation mm -hmm. is I feel like there's a lot of similarities between this story and things heard and seen. Yeah. And also this story and the Amityville horror, of course. Yeah. I was actually going to jokingly suggest that one of the options if they had left the Overlook would have been move to upstate New York and become a teacher again uh-huh. where no one could check on his <laughs> backstory. <laughs> um, and he can just write his own references. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a very good point. And in fact, the bit that you were talking about, about the specific motivations of like Jack or his father, we definitely see that in things heard and seen. And I think Amityville Horror, in spite of itself tells us that story when we're talking about how the family comes to the overlook i was thinking about how in some ways it really mirrors what happens in amityville horror where you have this struggling middle-ish class Mm -hmm. family that is given a cursed opportunity to live in a house beyond their means Mm. And that is a big draw, especially for generations that had been fed this American dream, right? Mm-hmm. In both situations, their their families end up paying the price. Both of these works that we've identified as being transitional in between the old mm. dark house, which is a mansion or a castle, and the suburban haunted house mm-hmm. includes the relatable family trying to be master of a house that is a little too big, Mm. a little too dark, (laughs) and also outside of what is financially accessible to them. Yeah. Because, of course, time and time again, we hear about how Jack and Wendy could never have afforded to even stay at the hotel one night, Mm -hmm. and they're made to feel like... In some ways, they are the, I don't know if masters is the right word, but. Yeah, there's a little bit of a sense of them getting to be in charge of things. Yes. Which also then reminds me of the turn of the screw as well, where she isn't really Mm. uh, the owner or the master of the house. But for all intents and purposes, she is the person with the responsibility. Yeah. And she gets to call the shots on a day-to-day basis, but it's also not hers. Yeah. I wonder if that goes back to the Great Gatsby thing we all learned about in English class (laughs) in ninth grade, where there's this anxiety about the lower classes getting to move up into the Mm. upper classes. Like if, if that is supposed to speak in some way to a discomfort with upward mobility for people who are in lower classes to move into upper classes and how they'll never really be the master of the house. They'll never really fit in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of starting to wonder if 
illusion of power is a common trope. Because like you said, we've seen that in quite a few. We see that in things heard and seen. Maybe less so in Haunting of Hill House. Although even then, I feel like there's a little bit of a... She feels not necessarily power, but maybe a little bit of that false sense that the house is going to to do right by her. And yeah, like, Jack has a false sense that the hotel wants him because he's special, and the governess feels that she's in a position of power, but I think it's interesting that, like you said, she really doesn't have any of the power, but she does have all the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's I think that's really the same for Jack, too. Yeah. In his position as caretaker of the hotel, he's responsible for anything going wrong, but he doesn't really have power. And he's aware and resentful of the fact that any privileges that he enjoys such as getting to eat in the formal dining room whenever he wants, which they end up deciding that they don't really like it all that much when there's nobody else there, Mm -hmm. um, feels like it's handed down in a very patronizing way from his employer because his employer recognizes that he would never have access to those things in his normal life. Mm. It's very uncomfortable. And in some ways, I don't blame Jack for feeling resentful of that particular dynamic. Yeah. It also reminds me of the trope we see sometimes where, like, man thinks he can control nature Mm. and then discovers that he thought he was in control and he really wasn't. Like, time and time again, there's, like, a stallion involved (laughs) and, like, man comes along and thinks he's going to train the stallion and then... He thinks that he's in control, and then ultimately the stallion bucks him off or whatever. Yeah. Is, because I'm trying to remember, what are, where is it that that comes from? Because isn't there like, there's like man versus nature. Is it man versus man or, and like man versus himself or something like that? Is that the... That sounds like a thing. I think I heard it from you first, though. Oh, okay. I feel like I remember learning it in, I don't know, like, like high school stories English or... or... All, creative writing. Yeah. Or, yeah, like all stories boil down to like man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I heard was all stories are either the hero's journey or a stranger comes to town. Oh, yeah. Which kind of feels like there are two types of people in the world, <laughs> people who like water chestnuts and people who don't. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because like... Yeah. By definition, everything oh, should fall into one or the other because one mean. is the opposite of the other. But uh, yeah. it is still fun to kind of think of things in that way, though. Yeah, I, I think those can be an interesting tool to... Because even though it's a very oversimplified way of looking at things, it can be interesting by taking it from the approach of, okay, which does it fall into? And then we can kind of go from there and figure out the why does it fit into that category Or why does it not easily fit into one or the other? It's funny to think of this as being a man versus nature story, though, because Mm -hmm. it is super natural, right? Exactly. (laughs) Out of, you know, otherworldly. But also at the same time, I, I think that what that story arc is about is the fact that you may think you have control, but ultimately in this life, we don't. Yeah. And I think that's true. 
Yeah. So I guess I'm not really that opposed to it either. <laughs> yeah. Both the not being in control and be wary of the ways in which you are offered control. Because there's a possibility it might be an illusion. There's a possibility it might come at a cost that is not worth paying. And not to say that no one should ever be given power, because obviously there are lots of people who don't have power who should be enfranchised. (laughs) But kind of like um, Parasite, where you see this, like almost stepping on the heads of others to push yourself up. We see that here with Jack is offered this opportunity and he doesn't approach it critically. He, he doesn't question why this hotel, why Horace Derwent is making him this offer. And he's so susceptible to it because it gives him the thing that is most valuable to him, which is somebody confirming that he is special. Yeah. That he is better than everyone else. Or even just that he has value. Maybe not even more than anyone else, but he just needs to hear that he has value. Yeah. Because so much of his value he's looking for externally. He wants to write a play or a novel or something that his name will be attached to and that will elevate him things like that. Like, he's never okay with just the love of his family and enjoying whatever he's doing. It For him, it has to be in pursuit of self-aggrandizement, I guess, mm-hmm. or and a, and a position of power. Yeah, greatness, recognition, and power. I think given what he is susceptible to and the decisions that he makes there's not really a way to say that he doesn't value power yeah and i think for him power and esteem are so closely intertwined when that doesn't necessarily need to be the case yeah but he has been taught those narratives and he believes Mm. them I feel like we could go on and on and on, but I think we I need to cut this off at some point. And, and yeah, I, I almost feel bad about talking about Jack so much because there are so many other interesting characters. But I feel like if we're talking specifically about hauntings and influences and things like that, he's probably the most interesting in that regard. Um, while I think that there could be plenty to talk about with regards to, like, Dick Halloran is a pretty interesting character. We have some pretty significant pieces with him. He has kind of an interesting relationship with Danny. And, like, Danny kind of has his own story, as does Wendy. But none of them really quite end up playing out the haunted house narrative as plainly as Jack does. And I feel like that's why so much of the conversation comes back to him, because... Many of the themes that we like to talk about are so evident in his story. I have several thoughts, and I'm going to try to get to all of them. Okay. I think you could really make a lot of comparisons between him and Eleanor in The Haunting of Hill House Mm. in terms of their stories of 
like we've kind of already touched on coming to the house and then the house working on them Mm. and trying to get them to stay and turn against everybody who's there to support them. Yeah. In the narration, we're led to believe that Danny is, quote, the catalyst for the hotel. Mm. But as far as the story goes, Jack is definitely the catalyst for the hotel infiltrating and really starting to take control. Yeah. Because just like in Hill House with Eleanor, Jack is the person that the hotel really sinks its claws into Mm. and really starts to manipulate to get the effects that it wants. Yeah. This is a great example of a book in which the protagonist is also the antagonist. Mm. As much as I subjectively prefer to spend narrative time with Danny and Mm. Wendy, Jack is, I think, the protagonist as well, because we really hear his story. I mean, he's the one in the trio with the most power, too, so it makes sense that he's the one pushing the story forward. Yeah, I think that makes sense. One, especially when we look at character arcs. Danny and Wendy don't necessarily have arcs. Like, Wendy has her own kind of side story of recognizing and accepting that Danny actually has special abilities. And Danny kind of has a little bit of his arc of coming to a little bit better self-understanding of his own abilities and things like that. But Jack's arc is massive. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I would say that that could be a criticism of the way that King has written this book. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that it isn't a fascinating and powerful book. Yeah. I enjoyed reading it both times. I'm not saying that it would be a better book if Danny and Wendy had larger Mm. character arcs. It would just be a different story. I think probably a story I would be more interested in myself. Mm. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't want to say that it's necessarily a problem that Jack is so central to the story. Yeah, And in fact, I think that reflects probably the time that it was written, Mm. possibly the perspective of the author. Mm. And also one point you could pull from the story is that Jack is the person with the most power in his family. He is the catalyst for anything happening in his family because of that position that he holds. And so a natural consequence of that family structure is that he is going to be the protagonist of everyone's story, whether they like it or not. Yeah. His characterization is such that he has to be the protagonist. Yeah. And in doing so, he becomes the antagonist. I think I want to highlight the fact that we find our discussion really focusing on Jack because he has such an interesting story arc, but that is probably because he was the center of the story, and the center of the author's focus. Yeah. Which could be a criticism of the author for making the other characters essentially be service to the main character. Yeah. I think there are lots of stories that do this and do it well, and this might be one of them. Yeah. But 
as we seek more nuance and depth in the portrayals of characters, especially characters of color and characters with identities that are underrepresented, we get tired of seeing women's arcs being secondary and just service to the male main character's arc. Yeah. This story at least has going for it that it is very clearly critical of Jack and of the power structures that he seeks to involve himself in. But, like you said, we're starting to see more and more now examples of how you can do that without centering your story around the villain. (laughs) Absolutely. So... Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's that's exactly what I was trying to say. Are we are we ready to I think wrap? we're okay. I think we're good. Okay. Um let's take a quick break and when we come back we will discuss our ratings. On a scale of one to five, how spooky is the shining? I'm gonna give it a five. Wow. Um, yeah, I I found it pretty spooky. Um, I definitely find a little bit of the, you can't even necessarily trust your own senses because the house kind of bombards you with who even knows what. Um, and what I think especially elevates it and what is another turn of the screw, so to speak, is the fact that a lot of it is coming from Danny's perspective. I feel like it gets even scarier when we're seeing things from the perspective of someone who doesn't understand what's happening. Because there's this dramatic irony at times where Danny has a vision. He sees something happen. He doesn't understand what he's seeing, but we do. And to me, that's really spooky, is knowing what this little kid has coming up, but knowing that he doesn't know yet or doesn't understand what's going to happen. So, yeah. How about you? I think I have to give it a four. Oh. And that's because the only information I had about The Shining before reading it was that Joey said he had to put it in the freezer because it was so scary. And that is quite an endorsement. (laughs) And I don't know if there is a book that actually scares me as much as that. There are plenty of movies that I would want to put in the freezer if we even had physical (laughs) copies of movies anymore. (laughs) Uh But that's a lot to live up to. Mm. And... I found a lot of it to be creepy. I found a lot of it to be thrilling and horrifying. And it has a lot of terror. Hmm. But it just didn't quite hit the freezer level for me. Okay. That's fair. Though I will say (laughs) that with this and for many of the books we read on the podcast, I do put a different book on top when I put them away. (laughs) 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 To be completely honest. So nothing's quite freezer level, but you do have like 
you don't want it on top of your book stack level. Uh huh. <laughs> Which I guess equates to a four in this case. That's fair. But yeah, I do think it's scary for all of the reasons that you outlined. And definitely one of the scariest books that I've read, I think. Mm. It is interesting, too, that you say terror, because that's one of the things that's often brought up about Shirley Jackson and Hill House, is her use of terror over horror. And I don't particularly know all of the nuance between those two, but there is something that kind of feels right about that. And it's interesting that you specifically used the word terror, especially knowing that that was one of his direct influences in writing this. On a scale of one to five, how haunted is The Shining? Five, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) Yeah, that hotel is haunted AF. (laughs) Oh, speaking about spooky parts and the hotel being haunted AF, is the fact that I think for a lot of haunted house stories, part of what we enjoy about that is the potential ambiguity. You wonder how much of this is possibly like hallucinations versus actually something supernatural or paranormal happening. And I love that with this one, you could try to come up with a lot of reasons for that, but then when... Dick Halloran comes up to help them out. He has not been under the hotel's influence at all or under any of the influences you might use to explain why they're seeing things, like even if you want to go the route of a shared hallucination or cabin fever or something like that. When he shows up and has only been there a short while, he encounters a roke mallet and suddenly feels the same homicidal urges Mm. that Jack did, along with a sudden change in feeling about the people around him that is very incongruent with who he is as a person and how he feels about these people. And that, to me, was probably the scariest part of The Shining, was how quickly it took him over and made him feel so differently to what he would feel without the influence. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. It seems like you, you don't always get that, but in this one, we actually do end with a very clear, oh no, this is an actual haunting. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. And yeah, like the house kind of, or the hotel in a last-ditch effort puts everything into trying to take him. So how haunted would you say the Overlook Hotel is on a scale from one to five? I mean five. (laughs) Uh, Especially with what you had said. I was already going to give it a five, but that really locks it down. The fact that sometimes we rate things a little lower because there's the, oh, this could just be happening in their heads. We don't know for sure. Um, And it is interesting that this one kind of plays both games, that there's kind of blurred lines between hallucination and real, but it's very clear that there are some real things happening. Also, this hotel is haunted enough that during the party scene, there are multiple decades of parties happening simultaneously. Just because over the course of history, like it's just been going on for so long (laughs) that all of these spirits uh, or events that have taken place here have impacted it so much that, yeah, you have 
decades of haunting happening all at once. Um, so yeah, I can't imagine it not being a five. <laughs> On a scale from one to five, how spousy is The Shining? I'm gonna have to give it a five. This this one is my triple five. Wow! <laughs> ding 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 ding. ding. <laughs> I was gonna say it's weird. There's confetti coming down <laughs> in our closet. I don't oh, know. No. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Do I hear the elevator firing? No, we don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, because Jack and Wendy's marriage is pretty central to the story. Um, a lot of their interactions and like even sometimes the thoughts Jack is having, the way the hotel is manipulating him, a lot of that comes down to their marriage. Um, and even their backstory is tied into their marriage with the fact that um, Jack's alcoholism and the toll that took on their marriage. And then even their own personal backstories, because Jack's family life growing up is very tied into his dad and the way his dad treated the family and their mom and that relationship. Wendy has um, some history like with her mom and her dad and their relationship. And a lot of that even shows up in like in almost intrusive thoughts for them. So like they're thinking about it. It's core to the hotel's story. It's core to their story. Um, so yeah, I, I think this one, that's a five. So here's my bias when it comes to these ratings <laughs> is that my immediate response is to give it a five. Mm. But because I gave it such high other ratings, I don't want to give it a five, but that's not how <laughs> ratings work. So uh -huh. I'm going to give it the five that it deserves mm. because the marriage in this one is one of the most central marriages to the haunting story, mm. I think, that we've come across. I'm not sure if it's the most because things heard and seen yeah uh, to me was really high up there mm. but um definitely along those same lines and for all the reasons that you said plus i'll also mention that spousal and domestic discontent was a part of the historic hauntings mm. that occurred as well so yeah i mean how could it not be a five? <laughs> <laughs> and now that I think about it, too, Jack and Wendy are kind of an iconic horror couple mm -hmm. in their own right. Extending beyond the novel and the film, they're a very iconic couple. Mm -hmm. Just to add one more reason, at least for me, what I take away most from this story is related to how the haunting impacts their relationship. Hmm. And that is such a key piece of the story and also, I think, influential to the horror genre Yeah. as well. So very iconic. Yeah. All right. Well, that about does it for our show. Thank you for joining us as we explored The Shining. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five spook review. Reviews help us get our show out there and help listeners find the podcast. 
So if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, you can suggest a rating category that we will use in an upcoming episode. If you have comments, just want to say hi, or have a topic suggestion, if you think there's something more iconic than The Shining, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Haunted Spouses. Thanks for listening, and remember... He twisted his key in the lock of the mahogany double doors and swung them wide. The sitting room's wide western exposure made them all gasp, which had probably been Ullman's intention. He smiled. Quite a view, isn't it? It sure is, Jack said. The window ran nearly the length of the sitting room, and beyond it the sun was poised directly between two sawtoothed peaks, casting golden light across the rock faces and the sugared snow on the high tips. The clouds around and behind this picture postcard view were also tinted gold, and a sunbeam glinted duskily down into the darkly pooled firs below the timberline. Jack and Wendy were so absorbed in the view that they didn't look down at Danny, who was staring not out the window, but at the red and white striped silk wallpaper to the left, where a door opened into an interior bedroom, and his gasp, which had been mingled with theirs, had nothing to do with beauty. Because, like, the hedge animals aren't in the movie, and Danny is different in the movie. Because Danny's part of what is supposed to be creepy in the movie, and I don't like that. Because <laughs> things are supposed to be creepier because we're experiencing them through Danny. Danny himself is not supposed to be creepy, Stanley.